Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How are you, friend? Welcome to another episode of the Paul Leslie Hour. And on this one, we're going to be presenting the interview that I did with Gino Vanelli. Gino Vanelli is a singer, songwriter, musician, performing, and recording artist. He hails from Montreal, Canada, and his signature songs include his biggest hit single, I Just Want to Stop, which was written by his brother and collaborator, Ross Vanelli, and Living Inside Myself, which he wrote himself. Unlike the lyrics of his famous song, Vanelli has never stopped. With close to two dozen studio and live albums, many of which went platinum and gold, Gino Vanelli's creative expression has spanned across numerous genres and crossed international borders. This interview aired on the radio not too long ago. It was done a few years back, I believe it was 2010 or 2011. I think the interview is still very relevant. And I hope to sit down with Gino Vanelli again. Maybe next time it'll be on camera. Who knows? Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, it is our pleasure to welcome the incomparable Gino Vanelli. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Paul. This question can sometimes be difficult for people to answer. It's a simple question. Who is Gino Vanelli? Are you asking me? <laughs> In your own words. That's as much an existential question or a question as it's, uh, it's a very broad question. You know, the, pe- the Gino Vanelli that people know is the Gino Vanelli that has, you know, kind of been distilled through whatever press, whatever songs, uh, whatever concerts, whatever hearsay goes around out there. So it, it's definitely going to be just a very, maybe, maybe a little bit more than a sliver, you know, of, of the person. But you know, when I, I hang around each day, whether I'm writing or reading or probing into whatever I'm probing or exercising or kayaking or whatever it is that I'm doing, there's not very much sense of, of exact self trying to, to meet the parameters or perimeters of, of what, you know, my circumscribed self is to me. I don't think of it in, in those terms. I just think of it in terms of this is something I want to do. This is something I don't want to do. This is something I want to learn. This is something I want to partake in or not. It's, it's more of a, sort of a circle without without edges. I think that was the best answer to that question we've ever gotten. <laughs> what was life like growing up in the Vanelli household? Well, music was a, a big part of our lives. My, my dad was had sung with some big bands and some jazz trios, and he was getting pretty close to, to making a career, a real career. And I, I believe he was scheduled to go on the Ed Sullivan, or at least the talent scouts on the Ed Sullivan show thought he was really good and taking a serious look at him. He was going to do a tour with Maynard Ferguson, who later became Stan Kenton's you know, lead trumpetist. And so there was music day in, day out at, at the house. And I had a set of drums, a set of Ludwigs by the time I was 12, and I was banging those things practically every day and hours a day and we had various groups joe and i and then ross later joined our groups it, it was almost a religion you know to to us because we listened and listened and, and it was broad we loved contemporary pop music you know we'd love to listen to the rolling stones or the beach boys as much as we loved, loved to listen to coltrane or debussy or Ravel, or, and and it was very broad for us it just music was the language of, of under our roof 
Do you feel that the musical and family bond of yourself, Joe and Ross, had a large role in the intricate, passionate, and timeless music that you as a unit helped create and produce? Well, it's a matter of intake, a lot of intake in our case, and then a fire burning in your belly that you want to be able to have your say in it or contribute something. I don't know where that comes from. You know, it, it could be something as silly as, you know, uh, what people would call creative. Maybe it's, maybe it's just us wanting to make babies or meet girls or something like that. I'm not sure. Maybe it's sub- sublimated in some way. But it ends up being creative. It ends up being something of the mind and the heart. You know, music became our, our, our religion because it was so much around the house. And we became ourselves because of all the people that we, we tried to emulate and tried to, uh, tried to learn from. I mean, I tried to know about people's lives as much as, uh, as much as their music. And in my case, it also extended to, to poets and to prose writers and fiction writers and, you know, trying, trying to learn from either their, their lives mistakes or good or bad they were. Well, with that said, have you been able to find that unique musical bond with any other musicians other than those in your family? Of course. Yes. Because, because it's a common language, a universal language. Anybody could learn to speak that language. And I suppose you're almost born with that language or you really have a, an inkling of it and really develop it. But there, there have been various musicians around that I have worked with that, that do speak, uh, that deep music language. Who would you say your initial influence are that helped develop your musical style? First and foremost was Gene Krupa and Buddy Rich. I mean, they, they got me interested in rhythm. And they got me interested in, in playing the drums myself. I mean, Gene was a little more old-fashioned than, than Buddy, but, you know, there couldn't have been Buddy without Gene and so on and so forth. But it got me interested in getting to the drums, sitting at the drums, and understanding what keeping time was and subdividing uh, time and rhythms. And and so when I got to, to be, a, you know, a music composer, I always kept a very close eye and close ear on... Drumming parts or rhythm, you know, and, and tempo and things like that. So I would say first and foremost was, were, were those two. And then it, 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 it followed that, that I would surf between, you know, either Brian Wilson and, or the, or the Swingle Singers or the Take Six or, or Miles Davis or, you know, Oscar Peterson and, and, and then maybe to Sinatra or Tony Bennett or Peggy Lee and Elvis Gerald or Sarah Vaughn. So, Whatever was challenging and deep and, and evocative, you know, would, would, would hold our attention and challenge us. My father came home one day with a bunch of Latin records with this guy named Tito Puente and Tito Rodriguez and, and, and a few others, Eddie Canto. And, and that kind of music, when I heard that when I was seven or eight, really intrigued me. I mean, where the, where the ones and where the twos and threes and where the, where the dominants were placed and how the chords were Americanized, but not so. They still had a lot of, you know, indigenous um, parts to them from Latin America. And, and the rhythms, of course, were, were so unique and with different drums. and different. What is, you know, kind of known now uh, in, in those days was very new. Late 50s, early 60s. Take us back to your meeting with the legendary Herb Alpert. What was that experience like? It was a little absurd because I had waited for him to come out of his office for hours and when i finally saw him come out of his office i just crashed the gates and ran to him and kind of 
accosted him and, and just started introdu and introduced myself and told him that I wanted to be on the label. And uh, somehow, some way, Herb is one of those guys that speaks that universal language. You know, he he sort of got a an SOS message for me and uh, told me to come back, and I did. And I auditioned for him, and we recorded six or seven albums on a and Records. What is your process, as in the process of composing, arranging, and then recording? What method would you say it is that you use? It varies. The last, uh, I did an album called Good Thing, a good thing, uh, that was written basically in Holland. In that case, I had written a bunch of poems and uh, decided to take uh, maybe 10 or 12 of them and turn them into music. That's why the album is, is about 23 or 25 poems plus the songs. And that was a very different technique of, of editing verse and, and rhymes and, and trying to you know, actually get to the piano and say, what is, what's, what's the texture or what's the tone of this line? The older way that I would do it would be kind of slamming away at the piano, coming up with melody lines and filling it in with a lyric. And then sort of when I hear my tire screeching, in a sense, touching pavement, I would I would know I was getting somewhere and, and fill in the lyrics till I found the theme. And then, then I would finish it. But I, I think that the best songs, the best works are the ones that have a direct intent from the beginning. Like, I want to write a song about this, or I want, to, I want to write a song about in this style, or this theme, or something's really bugging me, whether it be about romance or sentimentality, or, or politics, or, or friendship, or whatever it may be, and I know that I have to write a song about it. And that, to me, is a big impetus, because there is a birthing process, and that birthing process sometimes is a little bit painful. Speaking of style and theme, what inspired you to record the album Canto? And how did you approach that album artistically? That was waiting to be done, you know, for many years because I've, I've been such a lover of classical music. In my head, I wanted to take some of the impressionistic style of, of the French impressionists and uh, some of Puccini's style melodically or Verdi and, and come up with my version of it, you know, and add a little jazz to it and add a little contemporary inflection to it. And I came up with Canto, and, and it was a remarkably easy album to record. Once I started writing those songs, they, they came, well, I wrote all the material within three months. I did uh, the orchestration with my friend Glenn Morley and recorded in my uh, studio in Portland, Oregon. And it was a real labor of love, and I wanted to do it so, so badly. The days whizzed by. Glenn and I had a great time doing it. So it, one of the highlights, not only, I think, in, in respects to how it turned out, but highlights in the recording process. It's a beautiful record, but do you have a favorite album from your career? There are elements, you know, of of uh, certain albums that I think that I've really hit a higher watermark. I mean, there are elements of Yonder Tree, elements of Slow Love, elements of Canto, and, you know, elements of A Good Thing, and then elements even of the re-record album, Best and Beyond, which just came out last year. That are kind of a high watermark, and and that I I would be hard pressed to want to record again. I don't think I could work myself into that into that frenzy again of, of wanting to do that, need to move on to something else. You just mentioned Best and Beyond, and for all the listeners out there, that was an album that came out last year, and it was a reworking and re-recording of some of your most loved songs. What was that experience of recording and going back to some of that material like? 
Well, it started off in a very practical way. Three to five years ago, somewhere in there, I wanted to start touring again in earnest. And but I didn't want to just play the songs as they were on, you know, in the original recordings. And neither did I want to bastardize them to the point where they were unrecognizable. I asked myself the question: If I were writing them now, how how would I treat them? What chords would I use? What, what how would I approach it vocally? What would I designate, you know, in the in the in the arrangements? And then how could I use uh, modern technology to bring out the essence of the songs, whether it be Wheels of Life or Stop or People Got to Move, whatever? In asking the right questions, I I really uh, proceeded to get into the studio and for six months just come up with a bunch of new arrangements to about fifteen old songs. And the band, my Portland band I put together at that time, uh, rehearsed it with me. And we started taking it out. And I would always get people uh, coming back to me, uh, you know, backstage and suggesting, why don't you record this as an album? And finally, a year and a half ago, almost two years ago, someone from Italy, a man named Marco Rossi, uh, was at a gig and says, you know, I, I would really like you to record this and maybe I'd like to invest in it, you know. And so we got on board and, and started recording it and had a big kick doing it. Mainly because it's almost like it's it's like kind of being one up on yourself. Saying, wow, you know, this I thought it was so good at the time, but how about if I take it do, and do this to it? And in some ways it's, it's self-serving in the sense that after all this time, I think I could even sing it better and maybe even arrange it better and get musicians to even to play it slightly better. Nothing to take away from the original recording because the originals are the originals, but it's kind of nice to know that the song stands up after all these years and that you can still mess with it and it still cuts through in the right way. This can be a very difficult question for any songwriter. I've heard many songwriters compare their songs to like having a child. Could you pick a favorite song? No, I, I really I really can't pick a favorite song, but I could tell you some songs I, I still enjoy performing. I mean, there are many songs I still enjoy performing. I, you know, I, I've recorded, you know, since 1971, so you, you really, that's a lot of material to go through. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really can't pick a favorite. Well, one of your songs I know has a, a very special meaning, and that song is None So Beautiful as the Brave. I was hoping you could tell us about that song. Well, odd. In 1988 or 89, I was driving somewhere, and as driving and on the LA freeways and suddenly as if it was a picture on a blackboard had been written on the blackboard uh, none so beautiful as the brave I just said to myself as I was driving yes none so beautiful as the brave this is what I wanted to say then I while I was driving I scratched out a few lines and I changed <laughs> direction and decided to go to to Roy Freeland's house I got to Roy and I said, I know you're probably doing something else, but I said, I got this song, you know, that I've got started and, you know, but I'm missing a few lines, you know, you want to help me finish them. We finished it that afternoon and then I went back home immediately, skipped all my meetings and I knew right away what it, what it should be musically. It should be somewhere in, in Americana kind of style, simple, but soulful. So that same day, I, I wrote it and finished it, and I didn't know what to do with it because it had such a uni universal appeal, yet it was so specific. And I did record one version on Yonder Tree, and it, the song just sort of went into hibernation for a while, never performed it, never thought about it. And then last year, someone 
around the area where we lived, who was a Navy SEAL, died in the line of action. And I knew that I had to do something. Uh, yes, for him and for, for others that, that sacrificed themselves for, for the cause they deeply believe in, and also for their, their deep commitment to their cause, I want to uh, create a video. You've had the opportunity to perform in many places around the world. Could you maybe pick a favorite place that you've played? Again, I know I don't have a favorite place. You know, I've, I mean, I've enjoyed playing little places, you know, little hundred seat places. Like I, I've enjoyed playing at the Montmartre Club in Copenhagen, which is like seventy five seats. Yeah, I, I like I, I like small places. I also, I mean, we just a couple of years ago we played Mexico at a big festival and it was twenty thousand people, and that was fun too. I really have no preference at this point. I just, I just like having a great night. I love it when the band is right on. I, and I like it when I'm feeling strong and, and inspired and really awake and my voice slippery and I could just, I feel like I could sing anything. When that happens, it's, it, it could be anywhere. It could be even rehearsal. I've, I've been in rehearsals. I just came from Copenhagen last week where I did a, a gig at the Tivoli with a trio and I mean, the, the gig went fine, but the rehearsals were amazing. And I had such a, such a time during rehearsals. I, I, the thoughts that were going through me was, were more like, well, now I know why I still do this. Well, if you could put it into words, what is it that you like about music? Well, it's the aesthetic arrest. It is that moment where you forget who you are or you forget where you are. For the lack of a better explanation, it, it brings you closer to the divine. I mean, it's, it's really, a, it's, it's a vibration that kind of goes right through you and it's almost like an invisible molecular drug. Wow. Quite an answer. Where do you find your deepest well of inspiration for composing and performing? Is in a sense the most positive or the most negative things? You know, I can write a song like None So Beautiful as a statement of such adulation and praise and admiration for a certain kind of man or woman. And I also write a song like, from you know, This Day On, which is, you know, an indictment against someone. So, uh, I mean, it really comes from acute feelings. Nothing but, or, nothing ordinary. Nothing everyday. Nothing mundane. Something that stands out. Something that comes comes at you and either rubs the wrong way or the right way, really the right way. But there has to be a, a feeling that goes past the threshold of comfort that inspires me to write. If you could relive one musical moment of your career, what would it be? I have no moments that I'd like to relive at all. I, I never look at it that way. So I, I have to draw a blank on that. So you'd say that you're truly living in the moment. I had a long conversation about that with David Sanborn. You know, he's... He's really studied, he was in Copenhagen with me, and he's done a lot of Zen studying and so on and so forth. We were trying to delineate the difference between living in the moment and or dealing with the moment. <laughs> and uh, David was a proponent of living in the moment, where I was more of a proponent of dealing with the moment. Because whether it's a good experience or bad experience, I always think, from my point of view anyways, that I'm dealing with the next moment. You know, uh, the moment comes at me. And what is it about the moment that I want to keep or, or set aside? Or do I want to chew it up and really put it in my stomach? Or do I want to spit it out before I can actually swallow it? So I think in my 
for me, I'm always dealing with the moment and things are always coming at me, decisions to make. Do I want to write or record this? Do I want to rehearse with this guy? Do I want to play this, the, the, this, this concert? Uh, do I want to, do I want to go hiking or do I want to, whatever it is, it's always a decision to be made. And I, I like the consequences, good or bad, because it, it always presents a little bit more of me to myself. And I learn a little bit more, you know, about my, myself when I get to make those decisions. So for me, I mean, really to answer your question, it's really about the day-to-day that comes to me and the day-to-day ideas that I have to create something new. And that's really the kind of moment that I live in. Well, speaking of moments, what is the best thing about being Gino Vanelli? Well, it's taken a long time to get here. But there's a certain sense of independence, you know, that, that I have fought hard for. And it doesn't, it does not start with, with fame, because fame can only chain you up e- even more so. And it's not money. Money can chain you up in another way. And it's not, it's not possessions, because you can become a satellite of your own possessions. And it's not your talent, because if, if it's your, re- if it's your talent, then, you know, the minute you're, you have a bad week, or you you don't sing so well, or you, you go through a dry spell and you can't write anymore, you know, I guess you're, to yourself, you're screwed. Those are all fine, those things, you know, to have. But it comes down to the self. That what am I willing to go through? How do I see myself in this life? And how do I see myself before this life and after this life? All those questions that are uniquely human. And when you come to grips with all that, and you say, well, no matter what happens, I can do this. I want to do this. You have a clean resignation as to what you expect out of life. And when you have that clean resignation, then you could proceed on with less of a load on your back. And then when you proceed with less of a load on your back, you're a little bit lighter and you can take the good times and the bad times. You can take the aging process and you can take the, the adaptation that you need, you, the adaptability, I should say, that you need to have as time, as you go through the passage of time, the changing tastes of music, uh, the, growing into another decade or another generation. I mean, all that takes some doing. And some artists deal with it well, some artists don't deal with it very well. And But all I know is that if you don't deal with it from an ultra, singular, individual experience, if you don't get spiritual on it, meaning to say if you don't dig deep on it, you'll never find an answer because there is no pat answer. There is no real formula to success. There is no real formula to happiness. And there's no really, there's no real formula to creating a great project or piece of music or a great art form or piece of art. It's got to really start, you know, with that work, that inner work that, that the artist or whoever it may be begins with him or herself. And so for me, it really is about that. And having done that, I have some measure of independence in the sense that well, if this doesn't happen, I'll just try this. If I'm not going to record a record because no one's going to want to dis- distribute this record because the record is going to be so far off into, you know, this deep end, then I sit down and make a decision and say, will I record it in spite of it, just for myself and for my own private fans? I feel I can make that decision. Whereas maybe 20 years ago, 30 years ago, I was not capable of making that decision with really getting out without getting slightly bent out of shape with fretting about, well, what if? 
when you could subdue the what-ifs to a smaller perspective, then you have a relative amount of freedom. I think it was C.G. Jung who said that your problems never go away, it's just that your, your perspective of them changes. And so my perspective of my life and career has grown to the point where at least I, if it's not there, it might be there. If it's not there, and it might be there. And that sense frees you up somehow. You're not exempt from feeling like crap when things don't go well. You're not exempt from from feeling a little bored or down. or I mean, those feelings are always going to go through anybody if they're at all human. But they don't remain with me. They don't sit around and fester and rot me. They, they, they pass through me and I decide where I want to take them and I move on to the next thing. I have two final questions for you. One is kind of a 180 degree turn. This is a very lighthearted question, but I still think it can reveal something about a person. What is your all-time favorite meal? All-time favorite meal? Well, I have to say that I've become sort of a quasi-vegetarian, you know, these days. I, I like feeling a little lighter. I do eat some, some meat, but I, I really kind of minimize the, the, the amounts that I do take. So I, I don't know. In the summer times, I, 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 I like all kinds of salads, you know. I, I, I think that's, my mother is that, was that way, still is that way. Her, her dad was that way. I'm not much of a heavy eater. <laughs> you can't deny a great plate of pasta, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it's it, the right tomato sauce and the, the right pasta with the right cheese is simple. But it's it's an Italian worldwide staple. But I mean, I I, I love a great steak too, you know, and I, I like a great piece of salmon or, or halibut. I'm not very fussy about those things. And I I I love Vietnamese food. I love Indian food. I love Italian food. I love Japanese food. I love Brazilian food. Thai food. I'm not very fussy about it. The only thing I I do kind of look at is a particular taste. And was there a little bit of love in TLC? <laughs> before it gets to me. <laughs> For my last question, you have fans all over the world. This interview is heard all over the world. What would you like to say to all the people who will be listening into this radio special? I have nothing more, nothing but appreciation for people who have followed my work and me as, as an artist, as a person, maybe in some cases, uh, all these years. It's been 35, 40 years, and I feel nothing but gratitude. I also feel this kind of thing, that well, I got a few things inside of me that I'm going to get out, out of me. And I could very well say that I think I got some of my best stuff left inside of me. I just need to find that moment to press the go button because it's going to be a hell of a commitment. There's a couple of album, CD, projects, whatever you want to call them, uh, inside of me. And one is a, an all out impressionistic blues project. And there's another classical album that I've, that I've written that, that takes Kanto and beyond. And both of them are going to be long and hard labors of love. So I'm trying to map my time as to when I'm going to start. I've got a couple of books that I've been working on, and they will be finished at some time in the next five years. I'm just trying to divide my time between all things. So I, I can honestly say that my eye is still set on creating a better work than I've ever created before. And it's probably going to take me the next five to seven years to do it. Well, Mr. Vanelli, it has been an absolute pleasure to do this interview. I am incredibly appreciative. My pleasure, Paul. Ladies and gentlemen, you can visit Gino Vanelli online, www.genov, 
Com. All right, folks, that was the Gino Vanelli interview. I hope you enjoyed. As I mentioned, it was recorded a few years back. I still think there's lots of good content in it. I maybe would ask a few of the questions a little differently today. There's probably some questions I wouldn't have asked and other questions I would like to ask still. But you just never know what the future holds. Maybe there will be a chance for Gino Vanelli Round 2. And who knows, maybe we can do the interview in a studio and give you the best sound quality possible. The sound quality originally wasn't perfect, exactly. I put a little work in making it sound better, and I also want to recognize Jeff Pike and Vance Kelly for their audio work in making it sound as good as we could get it. It's always a pleasure to have you listening on the Paul Leslie Hour If you have any questions or comments, you can always reach out to me on the website. Until next time. The Paul Leslie Hour is hosted, produced, and written by Paul Leslie for Lifestyles Entertainment and Media. The Paul Leslie theme song composed, recorded, and produced by Jeff Pike. Outro music composed, recorded, and produced by John Goodwin, originally appearing in the short film Malukas and Vulnerable Jelly Things. Please consider subscribing to the Paul Leslie Hour. And if you like us, give us a review. It'll help other people to find this content. All past interviews are also available on YouTube. For more information, you can visit thepaulleslie.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ThePaulLeslie. Thanks for listening. Be good. <laughs>